I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. you just heard is called The Whistling Coon. Released in 1891, the singer was named George W. Johnson, the first African-American to make commercial records. Several years ago, the Library of Congress added another song of Johnson's, The Laughing Song, to the National Recording Registry to recognize his contribution to the music industry, which, until several years ago, had largely been ignored. That contribution is a complicated one. You see, Johnson, who was African-American, specialized in a type of music known as coon song. The word coon, if you don't know, is a racial slur used to stereotype Black people as lazy, indolent, easily scared, unintelligent buffoons. The word coon is an abbreviation of the word raccoon. Like the word itself, the coon song type was insulting and dehumanizing, yet it was an incredibly popular form of music during the era among Blacks as well as whites, especially whites, including some who sung it in Blackface. According to an NPR profile on George W. Johnson back in 2014 heard on Weekend Edition Sunday, author, commentator, and essayist Tim Brooks described Johnson as a Virginia native born into slavery in 1846 to a father of 15 and a mother of 13 years old. In the 1870s, he migrated to New York City and became a street performer, working for very little money. He was discovered after that. Quote, there was some embarrassment about him, too, even in the Black community, because the songs he had sung and had become so popular in the 1890s basically mocked Blacks, and they weren't considered racist at the time, but by 1914, the NAACP had been founded, and there was a movement underway to improve the lot of African Americans. So he was kind of pushed out of the public consciousness in the teens and 20s and so forth. His records went out of print, and he was pretty much forgotten for many years after that. End quote. 
My point in playing George W. Johnson's song is to demonstrate just how pervasive racism was at the time of the 1898 Wilmington insurrection. The fact that racism was so ingrained into the fabric of American society at the time that it helped popularize a form of music that was so dehumanizing to African Americans made it that much easier to organize a white supremacist campaign that would inflame racist sentiments about supposed black incompetence while evoking fears of African American domination, which would seem unlikely by an incompetent people. And that campaign would poison the minds of white supremacists who would rather murder dozens of innocent blacks in part of the largest and one of the most prosperous cities in North Carolina than to exist in a thriving community governed in part by competent, intelligent African-Americans, just several decades removed from slavery, many of them. In episode two, we left off with David Zucchino, New York Times journalist and author of Wilmington's Lie, the Murderous Coup of 1898 and the Rise of White Supremacy. Zucchino helped guide us through the complicated details of the Wilmington Massacre. Next, you're going to hear a brief synopsis of those events and their impact on the community of Wilmington in a recording of a video produced at the Cape Fear Museum located in Wilmington, North Carolina. The recordings courtesy of New Hanover County and the Cape Fear Museum. James Baldwin said that American history is longer larger, more various, more beautiful, and more terrible than anything anyone has ever said about it. Wilmington's history is a perfect example of this. It is long, complicated, and terrible. And in that, we need to know about those stories and acknowledge that history in order to talk about the history of 1898. And when we think about the history of 1898, We have to think about why here? Why Wilmington? Why 1898? Why not Raleigh? Why not the capital city? What is it about this time and this place? Why Wilmington? Why 1898? And in order to understand that, we need to look at our city's history. We need to look at what happens here in the 1800s and why Wilmington is so important to the history of North Carolina. The first people of the region were the Cape Fear Indians who lived here for hundreds of years. With the arrival of white settlers, many of these native people died from disease, left to fight against white colonists in South Carolina, and moved inland away from the encroaching white settlements. By the time Wilmington was settled in the 1730s, these native people were mostly gone from the region. As white Europeans colonized the region, they brought with them enslaved Africans to work in a variety of industries, the largest of which was the naval stores industry. Wilmington's economic wealth and power was literally built using the labor of these enslaved people. By the middle of the 1800s, Wilmington is the largest city in North Carolina. It also has a black majority, even if most of those African Americans are enslaved. After the Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments are passed. They abolish slavery, um, give African-American citizenship, 
and give African-American men the right to vote. And this creates a new era in our city and in our county, especially because African-Americans are in the majority. So black men gain political office and political power. But what does freedom mean for people who had been enslaved? One way to explore this question is to look at some of the men and women who were living in Wilmington in the late 1800s and see what they were doing. Mary Washington Howe was a teacher in Wilmington and became principal of Williston Grammar School in the 1880s. After emancipation, African Americans build their own churches, creating strong centers for the community like St. Stephen's AME and St. Mark's Episcopal Church. By the 1890s, the second generation of the Hargrave family owned their own blacksmithing business on North 11th Street. Henry Brewington represented New Hanover County in the North Carolina General Assembly from 1874 to 1876. And freedom also meant being able to keep your family together. Wilmington also had the only known daily African-American newspaper, the Daily Record, owned and edited by Alexander Manley. All of this made Wilmington a special place, a place of opportunity for African-Americans. And that, in turn, made it a target for wealthy whites who formerly had held power in the state. These wealthy white men organized a deliberate statewide white supremacy campaign targeting Wilmington that led to the violence around the 1898 election and the overthrow of the legally elected Wilmington city government. detailed by the narrators you just heard from and David Zucchino in episode two of this season, one of the central figures of the 1898 Wilmington insurrection was Alexander Manley, the editor and publisher of the only Black daily newspaper at the time, The Daily Record. Manley was outspoken about demanding rights for Black men guaranteed in the Constitution. During the 1898 white supremacist campaign, as the Democrats stoked racial flames with unfounded claims, including that Black men were Black beast rapists, Manley wrote an editorial refuting those claims and insisted that many Black men who were lynched for allegedly raping white women in fact had consensual sexual relationships with those white women. He also pointed out that men had been raping Black women with impunity for years. This caused Manley to become a target in the Wilmington insurrection by mobs who wanted to lynch him. Next, you'll hear Manley's son, Milo, explain his father's ordeal and how he managed to escape Wilmington. It's worth noting that according to Milo, his father, Alexander, was related to the former North Carolina governor, Charles Manley. You might recall from episode one of this season that Charles Manley is one of the prominent white figures believed to have sent their children to learn under the free African-American teacher and preacher, John Chavis who opened a school in Raleigh in 1808, well before the end of slavery. This recording is courtesy of the Louis B. Nunn Center for Oral History within the University of Kentucky Libraries. It's dated September 11th, 1984. If you're interested, you might want to visit the Louis B. Nunn Center's website to listen to the entire interview. The Manley family is really quite a remarkable group of people. 
Well, there was a man named Charles Manley over in England that uh, got on the wrong side of the situation, and his family decided to keep him getting hung. They'd better ship him over to the States. He landed in uh, North Carolina and got, came over on what they call a letter of credit. He became very active and wound up as governor of the state of North Carolina. And during the course of his activity there, he had slaves and he had umpteen children by his slave girls. But one day when he, when the story, this is the story that I get, has been told from the, up through the family, he said that uh, when he got to the point where he decided he couldn't really get, do much getting around with the, the girls, he gathered all of them up, looked them over and picked out all those that looked like him, granted them manumission. You know what that is. Yeah. Gave them a, a hunk of land in North Carolina, farm equipment, materials, and so on, so forth. Said, now go on out and make something yourselves. Today, that town is named Manly. It's an incorporated community with its own post office. I went through there in 1928 with my brother and got the shock of my young life. Almost every damn person in town looks like everybody else. <laughs> in Inbreeding and uh, so forth. And uh, an awful lot of them look like me. Most of them. <laughs> we, stayed there, we stayed there two days. I haven't been back. Because when you go back to a place uh, a long time after, it never looks the same. But um, individuals from there have come out and scattered around. I have come across, as my running around the country, individuals, we look at each other and, and, and sort of, and ask, may I ask you, what is your name? Manly. I said, that's my name. And when we try to check back, well, you can only go so far. Now, for my father. His father, my grandfather, was the uh, was a son of uh, Charles Manley by one of his slave girls. But he looked, uh, let's see now, I don't, don't know, oh yeah, my grandfather, he married a girl who was part Indian and part white. Their children, do I have anything here that looks with my uncles and all? No, darn it, that's all down. But well, you saw the picture of my father. Yeah. They were all like that. And some of them, some of my uncles deliberately moved over onto the white side of the fence for work and so forth. It covers the seven, uh, my, my father, who was elected to stay as to what he was considered, although I'll have to admit, and looking at my father and my uncles, time and again, I've tried to figure out where on earth they, anybody could call them colored. Yeah. But that was my father. He said he knew that uh, he was part colored, and that was it. He went to Hampton. There he studied printing and painting. From Hampton, he went uh, into Wilmington and worked there for a while as a, as a painter. Then he and, his, and a couple of his brothers and a friend that they made set up this newspaper. And they, for a while it was a weekly. Then they converted it into a daily. It flourished and was going along very well. He got into the political situation, which this book will describe completely. And uh, what happened then was, and this book is typical of what went on all around in the South 
just after the carpetbagger period, when the government stepped in to try to redress some of the things that the carpetbaggers had done, uh, the whites that had been in power and had been slapped down then put on a campaign among the rednecks and the uh, uneducated to try to fight their way back up and get in control. That was the whole thrust of the, uh, that was going on in that period in the in 96, 97, and so forth. And it precipitated, uh, it was deliberately fomented, a riot in Wilmington, North Carolina. There was another one down in, I think it was Sumter, South Carolina. There were a couple of down in other places. It was a planned deal. And the result of this riot was a few people got killed. Oh, all sorts of things happened at that time. The Negroes to escape the mob shootings and so forth left. My father and uh, another friend who was a part of the newspaper setup uh, got my father's buggy, which, of course, the Cadillac of the day, horse and buggy, and uh, they headed out of town. But the uh, gang, the mob that had been set up had put a circle around the town. Nobody, and they, because they were coming in to lynch this nigger manly. He was the editor of the paper, and they say he's claimed some of the stories that he wrote and so forth. Well, a German grocer who knew my father got a hold of my call, my father got in touch with my father and said, look, you've got to get out of town. He says, now, they don't know who you are or what you are. So this gang, there's all these people out there. But they've lined it up that nobody can leave the vicinity of this, of the, the, this, this cordon unless they have a certain password. He said, now, if it ever got known that I gave you the password, they'd kill me. But I know you. I trust you. I want, not, I want you to get out of here. He gave my father the password. My father went on up to come up the line. They stopped him. Where are you going? He said, name the town up there. Where are you going back for to buy some horses. He says, an unsinned auction up there, something like that. Oh, all right. He gave the password. Okay. He said, but if you see that nigga Manley up there, shoot him. And they gave him two rifles. <laughs> That's right. Away he went. He sold the horse and buggy, went, went, went up to Washington. Washington, D.C. He went up to uh, George White, who was the congressman from North Carolina. Uh, who he had known, George Wright hired him as his secretary. And he stayed there in Washington, and my father, my mother, of course, was in England when all this happened. But she came back and later, and my father and mother were married in Congressman White's house by, I can't think of his first name, his name was Grimpke. His two sisters were well-known writers in South Carolina. And Reverend Grimke married my mother and father in Congressman White's house there in Washington, D.C. My father then came up to Philadelphia. And uh, that's, I've given you how we got started there by meeting up with the Quakers and uh, getting active in community affairs. And that's, that was it. That's how he got to Philadelphia. When did he come to Philadelphia? Uh, 1901 or two. And do you know why he chose Philadelphia rather than New York or Chicago or anywhere else? No. No. I have no idea. How did he feel about being a painting contractor? He'd been a, an editor of a, a, a very prominent, important newspaper. It was, the Secret- o- it was the only Negro daily in the country. Okay, here he was, editor of the only Negro daily in yeah, the country. Yeah, but he was wiped out. 
Yeah, but then he's secretary to the the last yeah. Negro congressman right. after Reconstruction. Right. Then he comes to Philadelphia and right. he goes into a painting and uh, paper hanging. Well, he was no no paper hanging, no paper hanging, just painting paint. and decorating, painting and decorating. But business. he was uh, uh, working with the Armstrong Association and he set this up as a sideline since he had known painting. He trained was uh, trained with it at Hampton, and uh, here I was coming along. So he. Uh, Set up his painting business flourished because the, the Quakers had so darn much work around, and then when they found that the work he turned out was good work, so he decided that that was something worth getting onto. And then, being a contractor, was uh, and with his education, so he 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 came right in on the upper level, as we call it, the OPs, and went right along with it. But that never that never affected him. He didn't give a hoot whether the the garbage man or what was all right with him and. This. But that's that's the way it went, hmm. and with his painting business, it really was going good. In fact, Traveled to Wilmington to participate in the 1898 commemorative events. Just several weeks prior to the release of this episode, I met several of Alexander Manley's descendants, Kieran Hale and Layla Hale. They were also there to participate in the commemorative events and pay homage to their ancestor. I talked to them about Manley's life and legacy and what they're doing to continue to build upon his legacy. I'm Kieran Hale, and I am a great-great-grandchild of Alex Manley's. I'm a musician and a multimedia engineer, essentially. Okay, how about you, Layla? For sure. My name is Layla Hale. I also go by Rue. I use they and them pronouns. I'm also the great-great-grandchild of Alexander Manley. I'm the creative laureate for the city of Portland. You're also a dancer, too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a dancer and tattoo artist and an organizer and a lot of stuff. Okay, cool. Layla and Kieran, so just tell me, Alexander Manley and Carolyn Sampson Manley, who was born Carolyn Sajwar, they had two children, Milo Alexander Manley and Lewin Robinson Manley. Milo married Lucille Pauline Manley, who was born Lucille Gilbert, and they had a daughter, Patricia Elizabeth Hale, who was born Patricia Manley. Do you come from Patricia Hale's line of the family tree? Yeah. So Patricia was our grandmother. She died before either of us were born. She died in the early 80s. But yeah, she was our grandmother. Okay. I'm glad I got that straight. You're both from California. Layla, I know you live elsewhere now. But Kieran and Layla, you're both from California. 
I wanted to know personally how your experiences growing up in California influenced your outlook on race in America, but did learning also about Alexander Manley, your forefather, change or influence this perspective as well? Hmm. Well, for me, definitely, uh, yes. For one thing, one of the earliest kind of big deals about race that informed me generally was the L.A. riots. And that happened, I was seven, I believe, seven years old. Uh, And so, yeah, it was just kind of an eye-opening experience for me to understand that it it could be the, the motivation for so much pain and that it was everywhere around me. It was this huge thing. And so, yeah, that certainly informed on me. And then later when I was in school, I did a few years of community college, I did essentially two papers on Alex Manley. And that for, for me specifically, yeah, that, that meant a great deal because f- for me, a lot of my study at the time was kind of uh, trying to define where, like how I could comfortably define myself as black, understanding that I don't look it to the common person. And for me, studying Alex Manley, knowing that he looked more or less like me and he could have lived his entire existence as white if he wanted to, and he chose not to, and he chose to fight and eventually suffer for blackness. I took that as a great example. And we all met in Wilmington when you were both there to participate in some of the commemorative events surrounding the 1898 Wilmington insurrection. And so just for folks who don't know, and I guess it's worth mentioning because you mentioned it, you are quite fair-skinned, as was Alexander Manley. You both don't have the typical phenotype when it comes to looking African-American. Yeah. And so, Layla, how about you? Like, I don't know how my geography affected my upbringing because that was my upbringing, right? I don't think I've learned how race functions differently in California until I left. But, you know, learning more than just familial myths and whisperings, it really brings up questions of legacy and lost legacy because if I had looked like I looked during the... Wilmington Massacre, I wouldn't have survived that, right? I am here today because my light-skinned ancestor was able to use his white privilege to survive that massacre. So, I, you know, I think about, you know, where, where that places me as a darker-skinned Black person who is the descendant of, you know, a lighter-skinned Black person. And so for me, I think I've been making a lot of connections to Alex's publishing history. I started a mini newspaper when I was in fifth grade. That made me think, oh, maybe I'm leaving a little bit of legacy because there's this shared desire to transmute information, right, to empower our people. So for me, building off of like all of Kieran's labor in this, it's really been about, okay, so what torch are we passing on? What ancestors do we have obligations to? And what, you know, future ancestors do we have obligations to? And maybe I'll start with you, Layla, because you mentioned your interest in transmuting information to the public. When did you realize the significance of Alexander Manley's work? I feel like it was when I saw Wilmington on fire. There were so many pieces of the story that I didn't have. You know, I knew that, you know, he got run out of town, but it was all family folklore, right? That oral tradition wasn't really passed on. And again, I feel like that's a matter of safety. We don't tell the stories of the rabble-rousers in our families because we fear the retribution, right? And it's just worth mentioning Wilmington on Fire is a documentary about the Wilmington insurrection. How about you, Kieran? Same question. I'd say 
like Layla said, it was sort of just kind of an unspoken thing or like it would get mentioned here or there, but it wasn't really discussed really openly. But I'd say maybe about 10 or so years ago when I was writing and, and reading about it, that it kind of started to sink in for me. But what really kind of got me just involved and doing a lot of the nose to the ground detective work is I had a hip fracture. I had a bone break a few years back. And I was essentially since then scrambling to figure out the cause of it. And the little evidence I had pointed to the manly ancestry, that this is where I had a disease come from that caused this injury. And so it's been a slow process of researching and writing and going to museums and trying to put pieces together. But in doing that, yeah, you see a lot of just the work and the impact that Milo and Alex had throughout just, you know, the time and place they existed in. Yeah, it was a big deal. You, I, and Layla, we all met when we were in Wilmington. You were Mm -hmm. there on behalf of your family, I believe, Mm -hmm. participating in some of the commemorative events. I wondered what you thought about those events that you participated in or witnessed, as well as some of the gestures that the city of Wilmington and New Hanover County had made with regard to sort of really acknowledging the extent of what happened in Wilmington and the traumatic toll that it took on the community, particularly Black folks there. Yeah, some mixed feelings. I mean, it's interesting. It's good that there is acknowledgement. There was the report in 2006. I read the report. And that was nice. That was good. The conclusion of the committee that did the report was that the descendants should be paid. The city didn't do that. So there's that. There's the thing with the statue of the oars in 1898 Park. And I have mixed feelings on that. I'm glad that there is at least enough motion to memorialize and commemorate that this even happened. But to me, the oars specifically doesn't connect to really the time in history and the cultural moment that was at play during 1898. I would like to see more action, like besides ourselves, obviously myself and Layla and our family, there's clearly a lot of families and people who are still affected by it, who could benefit from some sort of an action on the part of the state or city. And I should just mention for listeners, the orders that you're talking about are part of this memorial that are in and near the Brooklyn community, which is where a lot of the Black folks in Wilmington during the insurrection lived. And their oars, I guess, representing the slave ship, the Cape Fear River that's close by, even though there's construction that's going to block it. (laughs) So just a point of reference. How about you, Layla? I always like to say that nice is the package that things come wrapped in, and it says nothing about content. So, yeah, they're nice, (laughs) but that's about it. Action without reparation is just that. It doesn't really mean anything. And the fact that, you know, they've approved construction that kind of destroys the entire meaning of the placement and symbolism of that art piece in the first place tells you exactly how much they give a shit about Black people, which is like little to none. And I feel like, you know, the asks of reparations are actually very, very reasonable that, that many committees have put together. You know, they listed things like, today's value for anyone who has records of property stolen during the insurrection they should have today's value in that property simple right they want free education for black wilmington students that seems like a kind of a no-brainer right there are all these really really reasonable asks 
for restitution and reparation that really aren't being taken seriously. And I feel like that's where I come in as a descendant and as an activist, you know, I'm part of several nationwide movements for reparations. Give us more than ores. We need an entire art center. The Black people of Wilmington deserve an art center. I feel like during one of the events, I asked, you know, how many things are there for Black teenagers to do for free in this town? And I got a lot of eye rolls and heavy sighs out of that room. And that, that's really indicative, right? If you're not investing in Black youth, you're not you're not doing anything. I'll start with you, Karen. How are you working to continue to build upon Alexander Manley's work and legacy? Wow, that's a great question. Almost all of us in our family, at least, are artists or writers or journalists or creators in in some way or another. And I try to contribute to that. I try to create as much as I can. But beyond that, I would like to see some sort of an institution or school in Alex's name. I would like to see a hub of multimedia that we could all create from or that people in the area could just use to create. And is that something you're working towards? Yeah. Dr. Kim Cook at UNCW has proposed the Alex Manley School of Journalism. I have a couple people at UNCW that I've spoken with about. How about you, Layla? I mean, same. We've had a lot of conversations about how, yes, a school feels like the very obvious thing to do. Because, you know, we're all really into... I say we're all learning fiends, you know, we're all nerds in our family. We love to absorb knowledge and we love to share it. So it just feels like, you know, a school would be the natural step and, you know, a way for us to really catapult and connect to other families, other groups, other Black folks working on reparations, right? I feel like it's truly living our family legacy. You know, we've been artists that clearly has never gone away. We've been artists and journalists and, you know, that's the golden thread. I think there and how we can really lay a foundation for future generations and, you know, Black futures. recall hearing Kieran Hale say that he read a report about the Wilmington Massacre that was published in 2006. Well, in the first episode of this season, we heard from North Carolina Central University law professor Irvin Joyner, who helped us understand the community of Wilmington before the 1898 insurrection and coup d'etat. Here's Professor Joyner again to briefly explain the findings of that report produced by the 1898 Wilmington Race Riot Commission, for which Professor Joyner served as vice chair person for five years. the major findings that the commission's study found and that you think are most noteworthy to highlight? Okay, noteworthy. (laughs) In terms of the factual findings, was that there was an organized effort instigated by the North Carolina Democratic Party that created a statewide campaign to denigrate the images of African-Americans in the state, and more particularly in Wilmington, 
And the campaign was designed to paint African-Americans in the state, particularly those in leadership positions, as uh, unworthy of being in those positions, as being barbaric, as being animalistic, as seeking to rape and have sexual encounters with white women. And that there was their motivation, that they were trashing the state, and that there needed to be a return to white supremacy or control by whites. And with the idea and the goal of running African-Americans out of political participation, taking away their political power, destroying their businesses and economic development uh, opportunities to reduce that population back to a kind of subservient one that would restore the notion of white supremacy in North Carolina, which they succeeded in doing. But it was a political campaign at the highest order by the operatives of the Democratic Party. And I can recall classes that I had here at the uh, law school during the 1980s and 1990s, where I talked about in Race and the Law, the history of Wilmington and what led up to the 1898 Wilmington race riots. People who came from Wilmington were shocked and had to go back to women to to verify the things that I was saying to them about what had uh, occurred during 1898 and all of the landmarks and things that were put up in Wilmington to honor this overthrow that occurred. So it was a suppression of that history as a part of the way that you undermine the authenticity and the authority and successes of African-Americans in the state. You mentioned this earlier, the idea of the Negro problem that, you know, led to the creation of the Ku Klux Klan. And it seems to me, you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, that it overshadowed politics, not just in Wilmington, but throughout North Carolina during this period in history. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, I think about the fact that you mentioned that Wilmington was a majority Black city, as were more than a dozen counties in eastern North Carolina during this time, which when you put, you know, that in context of a lot of Black people being able to vote or having, you know, voting power through suffrage can really tip the scales of power. I think of not just the creation of the Ku Klux Klan in 1868, also the new state constitution, which helped Republicans take control of the state. I think of efforts by the Democrats to suppress the Black vote and meet the Black Belt counties, powerless, so on and so forth. And I know it's a lot. (laughs) So, you know, I understand. But if you could just briefly kind of summarize the political dynamics in terms of race in North Carolina that then led up to the Wilmington coup d'etat, as it was. Okay. The Negro problem was the fact that African-Americans at that point were successful in engaging in the political franchise, participating in politics on an equal level with whites, being able to show success in the economic realm. And all of this was contra to the indication of Black inferiority and that they were incapable of doing all of the things that they were regularly showing that they could in fact do. 
So in order for white supremacy to catch a toehold, they had to not only destroy those people who were engaging in these successes, but to knock it out of the minds of people that this was a part of the history of that area and of those people. So the overthrow was complete because after that, they then changed the Constitution, created a uh, law that disenrolled every North Carolina citizen from the voting rolls. Then they created a new registration process that included the literacy tests and also included the poll tax and then required that everybody re-register in the state. And in that way, they were then able to administratively keep African-Americans from having the power to vote, either through the use of the literacy test or through the poll tax. And then they had the uh, grandfather clause that they put in place that would then give to whites the ability to avoid both the poll tax and the literacy test if their family members had voted prior to uh, 1865. And that would only apply to whites and to their descendants. But the notion was that you take away all of the uh, successes as a uh, foundation for this notion that whites were superior and that uh, African-Americans were incapable of controlling, managing, or directing any aspect of life in the uh, state of North Carolina. And Jim Crow did an effective job of taking that away and making it illegal to further engage in those types of activities. Combined with the Ku Klux Klan and their reign of terror, the suppression was complete. episode, we'll begin to unpack events leading up to and surrounding the 1900 white supremacist campaign that resulted in North Carolina's suffrage amendment, which effectively eliminated the Black vote in North Carolina for decades to come. And for all of the listeners out there, do me a very big favor and rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform. Every time you do, it helps us reach more and more people who are interested and want to learn about this history. Everybody for your own food. He's a knock-kneed, double-down, he'll get broken, but he's happy when he was a little.